Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, of the Sports Business Podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. The Indian Premier League is one of two professional leagues in the world where all of the franchise teams are profitable. 12 years since launch, the IPL is valued at $6.3 billion, accounts for 30% of global cricket revenues and over 60% of India's sport economy. Those numbers are why every rights owner and governing body seeks to learn lessons from both 2020 cricket and the IPL. But what are they? How much of it is about sporting format? Or is it specific to India, its culture and media economy? And how much credit should we give the league's creators and the group of entrepreneurs who put their money into building those franchises in the first place? We talked to Manoj Badale, OBE, the sport and tech entrepreneur who has been the lead owner of the Rajasthan Royals franchise since the birth of the tournament. Many of the regular themes of our podcasts are here, sport as entertainment, the role of private investment in sport and the implications of globalisation. During the conversation, we reference Manoj's book, A New Innings, co-written with journalist and former cricketer Simon Hughes. It's aimed squarely at the unofficial partner sports business audience, deciphering the lessons of the IPL for the rest of us. It's really good and you should buy it via anewinnings.com, not least because the money goes to COVID relief in some of the poorest areas of the world. If you enjoy our podcasts, you should sign up to the weekly unofficial newsletter, where we go into greater depth on the topics and themes discussed in the podcasts. Head to unofficialpartner.com to register. In the meantime, here's Manoj Bedali. We met a long time ago when at Lords 2010, so it was a Lords press conference. Seems like a long time. It was a long time ago. And we were announcing the creation of the first global cricket franchise network with Hampshire. I think it was Trinidad, Cape Town, Victoria. Was that an idea ahead of its time? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, it didn't help that we got terminated from the IPL six months later. Um, so, so <laughs> rather distracted by court cases i'm really interested in how you become the sort of co-owner of the rajasthan royals what's in your background which led to that moment uh well actually it was um an initial interest in sort of investing in cricket and in fact the first uh business or entity that we created was a uh, was a group called investors in cricket back in 2006 um 2005 2006 and that that was created out of I think uh, frustration of my business partner having me regale tales of how poorly cricket was run especially here in the UK at that time um, and how much of an opportunity there was to sort of harness the economic growth of India uh, and also the uh, the increasing importance of the Indian diaspora and I think he forced um, conversation after a particularly long dinner to say let's just put some money into um a, you know a company and and you know go and you know go and get on with it and so we created three ventures actually one was called um well one was actually uh, a television show called cricket star which was a sort of poor poor man's version of pop idol for cricket in india the second was we took over the commercial rights and the commercial running of leicestershire county cricket club uh, and the third was we created actually a tournament called the Champions League of 2020, which we staged uh, at Grace Road, which had the champions of the domestic teams all play each other. Um, and all of the ventures were were reasonably unsuccessful. Um, but what we did learn was an awful lot about 
the business of cricket. Um, and I think we developed a little bit of credibility within the game. And so when Lalit Modi um, was conceiving of the idea of an Indian city-based league, uh, I think I was one of the first people he called to say, um, you know, you should look at investing in a franchise. Um, and I think from his perspective, he was keen to get sort of overseas endorsement of the league um, and an overseas investor. So that that was how it came about. And, and uh, it was a case of sort of right place at the right time. Did you know him before? Yes, because the BCC, he was vice chairman of the BCCI um, and was therefore in charge of uh, sort of endorsing any BCCI marketing arrangements. And when I'd launched the television show Cricket Star, um, we needed BCCI approval to do that. Uh, and so that was how I'd first met him and got to know him a little bit. The, I mean, you mentioned the um, English cricket and the way in which it, I mean, I, I'm interested in its relationship with 2020 because obviously it's very, um, it's been very up and down, put it mildly. Um, I went to the first sort of season, the, the famous sellout at Lords, Middlesex versus Surrey, and um, I think 2003 or 2004. And uh, I went with my dad and we got locked out of um, Lords, which was a strange situation for a county game. Um, and I had to buy a ticket from a tout on St. John's Road. And the t- I remember the tout saying, ne- neither of us were expecting to do this today, were we? But when when did you first get the T20 presentation and what did you think initially? Well, I mean, I'd come across T20, obviously, living here in England and like you going to a lot of those early games I'd been to a few finals days um so although as a cricket fan you know I make no secret of my preference for the longer form version of the game it it was an incredible thing to see how county stadia were getting filled um you know with the shorter format and then through running Leicestershire I mean we made I mean broadly you know we made um, you know, close to eighty or ninety percent of our gate receipt income from the T Twenty games that Leicestershire played. And it was a particularly good Leicestershire Twenty uh, Twenty side, you know, with you know, openers like Darren Maddy and Brad Hodge. Um, you know, we were fortunate enough to win it a couple of times uh, in that period as well. So, so I so I was a T Twenty convert in terms of seeing the power of that shorter form. Um, India was actually relatively slow to T20. I mean, what, what, you know, the thing that um, at the time that India really discovered T20 was on the back of its World Cup win in South Africa. And, and, and that was, what, in fact, when Lalit Modi decided to sort of prepone by a year the launch of uh, what became the Indian Premier League. So, um, so no, look, I was fortunate enough to be, to be convinced uh, of the economic viability of the short form game it was just a question of when india um would uh would, you know would invest in it it's interesting you mentioned there about the the long form game because um initially and and for i think for a long time people would quite often i used to say oh i, I prefer there's a snobbery involved there's a i prefer the long form and it was a sort of signal that i was sending to people that i'm an authentic cricket person and you know i will put up with this latest thing that's not so you hear anymore because obviously the game has completely fundamentally changed and and it's interesting how 2020 has evolved both as a game but also as a as a business isn't it it's not that there's something 
that other sports are all, and we'll get onto this, but other sports look at 2020 and say, okay, we, we need a 2020 to reignite, to reach new audiences, do all the things that 2020 has done. Um, and I'm wondering, I guess the ultimate question that underpins your book and also the story of the IPL is actually whether people were learning the right lessons. Yeah, and, and I think, uh, look, look, you're absolutely right, Richard. I mean, gosh, you know, even when the IPL started, um, I think the first time we met actually was in 2010, uh, you know, when we launched a, a global um, sort of alliance under the Royals brand of franchises across the world. There was a huge amount of resistance to what we were trying to do, to what the IPL was. I mean, the English cricket establishment you know, did everything it could to avoid engagement with the IPL. Uh, I remember my, my, my sort of cricket friends here, um, I remember NASA Hussein, someone I'd known for many, many years, you know, describing it as club cricket. Uh, I can remember my cricket friends here, um, as you say, um, berating the sort of investment in the shorter form version of the game. But I, look, I do think we've moved on and I think the economic success, but actually more than the economic success, just the sporting quality of the Indian Premier League and indeed um, T20 internationals around the world. Um, I think even the most diehard um, traditionalists, uh, you know, can now see it's a really important part of, you know, ensuring the game's sustainability. And ensuring the game's sustainability was was a big motivation in trying to capture the lessons that we've learned, uh, you know, in the book and new innings. There's a, I mean, we've had Ed Smith on here um, a couple of times actually, and he, he, is that he, what he describes as being a late convert? He says Andrew Strauss turned him on to um, the, the to twenty twenty. He started to really become an evangelist for twenty twenty, and then saw it as a sort of hot house. I'm talking about performance on the performance side here. About you know that players had to be in the twenty twenty because it was such a um, almost like a sort of lab for the future of batting and bowling and fielding. And it's 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 there's an excitement of that which I think quite often people don't don't appreciate. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, and and I think what what, what you actually are referring to is when, um, I mean, when Andrew Strauss came in uh, to the role the first time round, uh, he was very encouraging of England players to play in the IPL, uh, and up until that point, uh, it was a real challenge for English players um, to. Uh, you know, to be allowed uh, to you know turn up to their counties late, to turn up to the England season late. Um, I think actually it was Owen Morgan who who was one of the first people to sort of argue the case for the fact that it was actually critical for English players' development to be part of IPL squads because it was this unique uh, learning experience and learning opportunity where you know you'll have a Ben Stokes. Uh, in the same dressing room as a Steve Smith, in the same dressing room as a David Miller, swapping, uh, swapping ideas, swapping um, uh, skills. I mean, you look at the something like the ramp shot, mm. and how that's really evolved out of the IPL. I think it was Dilshan that was called the Dilshan scoop initially. But you look at how players learn from each other, and you know, we I think Sanjay Sampson refers to you know the IPL as the you know the University of Cricket, um, and that's what it. It really does feel like when you you know when you see the players practicing together. Mm. So when you when you sat down to to sort of write the book, um, or even you know now you've written it, what do you think 
the lessons are for for the broader sort of business of professional sport that that have come out of the IPL? I th- look, I think there are many. Um, I think uh, if I were to try and highlight a few, I think the firstly the tournament was designed with an absolute focus on maximising the value of the media rights. Now, historically, they were broadcast rights, and now they're broadcast and digital rights, but everything about the design was about uh, maximising eyeballs. And media rights, as many fans are now learning through coronavirus, uh, are the lifeblood uh, of sports. And you know, one of the things we learned with our early failures uh, at investing in sport is you know, unless you've got a share of the media rights, or unless you've got a path to getting a share of the media rights, sports investing is you know, a pretty unattractive proposition by and large. Um, so, so I think that focus on uh, creating value uh, around the media rights uh, was essential. The way they did that through the design was a focus on unpredictable outcomes. And so, uh, you know, or put differently, a focus on creating a level playing field between the teams. I mean, that's been evidenced by the last IPL where two points separated, um, you know, seven of the eight teams. Uh, so, uh, or certainly six of the eight teams. And so that focus on unpredictable outcomes is something that English soccer fans, for example, uh, don't necessarily uh, always recognise. But it's one of the challenges with you know, the English Premier League, for example, which is as an investable proposition um, for many years without a salary cap, which is the which is the way you create a level playing field, you know, the sport's dominated by a relatively small number of teams. And so therefore, many of the games that take place uh, attract very, very low eyeball numbers because you know, people, people want to watch games between the big clubs where the outcome you know, is unpredictable. And every IPL game um, you go into not knowing who's going to win. So that, that focus on media rights was a key lesson. And that was underpinned with a set, the salary cap. And very importantly, as rugby has learned, uh, not just a salary cap, but a salary cap with a very transparent uh, purchasing process. So in America, they call it the drafts. In the IPL, we refer to it as the auction. But you know, salary caps, people will always find ways around salary caps. Um, but unless you've got a very visible, uh, transparent uh, process by which the players get bought, the salary caps um, you know, will get uh, eroded slowly. Uh, so I think that was a big, the design of the league is a huge lesson. And we try to capture that in two or three of the chapters up front, uh, because I do think other sports can learn from that and other leagues within cricket can learn from that. Um, but the, the the other lessons that we try and bring out, are the importance of regulators. I mean, it's not the most exciting or sexy topic to talk about the importance of the associations, but you know the associations and the regulators of the game, the governors of the game, make such important decisions about scheduling, about formats, about player uh, utilization, about when games take place, how they take place. And I think too many fans um, don't engage enough on that because it's only the fans and the players who can ultimately sort of influence our regulators. Um, and I think the other thing that we try and draw out is just how the IPL was obsessively focused on reaching new audiences, uh, whether that be by gender, whether that be by geography, uh, and again, sort of maximizing the value of those player rights. And I think the last thing, the last lesson, which I think is good, is, is becoming a really topical right, a topical one right now, 
is the importance of private investment uh, into sport because without private capital, you constrain the funding that a sport has to the funding that a regulator or a governor has. Without private investment, you don't get the all-important risk capital that you need to innovate and experiment and try new things. And without private capital and without uh, investors in the game looking for profitable return, you often don't get the right decisions. Okay, let's um, let's unpick some of those though, because some of those are, you know, theme. This is a sports business podcast, and some of those have been regular sort of um, bits of the conversation. Just start, start at the end then um, with private equity and and private investment. Um, what are the limitations of a privately sort of funded league? I'm I'm thinking here of you know you've got um, new leagues appearing you've got something like the, the hundred and is obvious place to go you've got which is a governing body driven um element to it are we saying then that that would be a better product were it in private hands no that's not what i'm saying uh, look i think the, the 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 issue of private investment in sport is quite nuanced i mean firstly you talk about private equity and you talk about private investment so they're quite different things. I mean, private equity funds who are now starting to invest in sports franchises and leagues, as for example, CBC have done in rugby, um, they have a very different modus operandus than, for example, corporate investors or private investors. They have specific time horizons, they have specific return expectations, um, and therefore there's a dynamic created around that type of investment that can be quite different to uh, an individual investing. So for, for, for uh, you know, the audience without getting too, um, too granular, you know, the source of the capital and the source of the money is very important because the behavior uh, of that investor and the time horizon of that investor will be quite different. So that's the first. So that, that's, that's the argument in favor of, billionaires in terms of they got a long window they they can afford to to ride out the longer term i think it's an argument in favor of patient capital and patient investment whether that's a billionaire or not again i think you know i was very careful to talk about the source of capital i think it's very important that leagues when they look at private investors look at the efficacy of those investors look at the motivations of those investors and look at the credibility of those investors um, so it's not, you know, it's more nuanced than just going after billionaire money because that may or may not be uh, the right place to go. I also think there's a very, very important set of questions about where within a league you allow that private investment to come. Mm -hmm. uh, so people often say, well, you're just an advocate of private investment in the hundred or, uh, you know, in all leagues. And actually, I'm not. I, I think it's really important that you know private investment unregulated and capitalism unregulated results in bad outcomes we you know we've seen that in the financial services sector you know on many occasions and it's really important that we have strong governors strong associations strong regulators of the game and it's really important that they are there to represent the fans and the players um, and confusing that with private investment is is i think a dangerous road to go down however when it comes to franchises or investment in stadia or investment in parts of the sport that require and benefit from innovation benefit from um 
capital investment up front that's where the returns are paid over many years. But IPL franchises, you know, many of them didn't make a profit in the first 10 years. Um, so that sort of risk capital and that sort of um, patient capital that's willing to take those time horizons to wait for a return is really, really important in franchises, in stadia, et cetera. So I think it's quite nuanced, both in terms of where the private investment comes from and where the private investment goes to. I also think that there need to be, and we need to be much more thoughtful about what the optimum model is for private ownership. Because as we're seeing in the corporate world right now, where everyone's talking about responsible capitalism and inclusive capitalism and thinking about more than just the stakeholders who are the shareholders, but employees, etc. In the game, we've got to think about fans. We've got to think about um, the sport. Um, and we've got to think about how that's preserved and protected by the regulators. But also, we've got to think about how some of the returns, if they are made from the private investors, flow back into the grassroots of the game as well. And, and I think the IPL got a lot of things right. But I don't think necessarily, you know, it's the perfect um, model of franchise ownership either. Is there a, a, a in terms of the the framing of this, in terms of a, a sort of public versus private debate? It quite often it quite often sort of skews people become to that with a whole set of prejudices on either side. I think you're spot on, Richard. I mean, I, I often say that this debate about private investment in sport is no different to the debates that we have about how we run the health service or how, how we run schools. Um, you know, there's this sort of ideological obsession that so many people have about, well, it should be public sector or it should be private sector. And if there's one thing we've learned through the coronavirus, it's that if you get the public sector doing things that the public sector is not equipped to do, you get bad outcomes. Uh, the other thing we've learned through coronavirus is if you don't incentivize private investment in things like the vaccines, you don't get a vaccine. The answer is not public versus private. You need the two to work together, whether it's education, whether it's health, whether it's sports. And my own personal view is that the job of the public sector is to ensure that whether it's the industry or whether it's sport, that the accountability to the fans or the consumers, that they are protected. That should be the primary um, primary objective of regulators, to protect consumers, to protect fans, and in the case of sport, protect fans and protect players. Within that framework, you, private investment, I believe, is the best source of investment to create innovation. I mean, how much innovation and how many inventions come out of the public sector? You know, not many, you know, it, it's because it, it requires risk capital. It requires... Uh, entrepreneurs and individuals who are incentivized in a particular way um, and it requires a different mindset and it requires and it's the profit focus the promise of returns um, that, 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 that attracts that investment and without that right type of investment you don't get the innovation that you need so I think you're right I think the sporting debate is no different to the debate that's raged you know across society for many years so you've got you've got governing bodies and they're playing an interesting role. So across things like, you know, if you say FIFA, for example. So FIFA has a, or, or UEFA, let's pick UEFA. UEFA has an innovation hub and FIFA had one and then sort of closed it down. But one of the 
ideas behind it was that it would be a sort of incubator of 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 new technologies and and ideas and data analytics and and all the stuff that gets private investors interested but it doesn't have any power to invest money itself and so it's try, I'm trying to sort of work out what how that is going to evolve because you can sort of see that having if I'm a um, an entrepreneur with an idea that's going to transform cricket going to the ECB or the ICC is valuable in that I get a badge or I get an endorsement for my product but they're not going to give me money because that's not their role is that and so I'm just trying to work how do you see that evolving over time I mean there's nothing wrong with that I mean I think it is great that regulators, associations, governing bodies encourage innovation, stimulate innovation, endorse new products. Uh, you know, when I was starting Cricket Star in 2006, I had to go and get the BCCI endorsement to put what was a new format, an innovative new television show um, onto ZTV. Um, I think that's great because um, that's the governing bodies using their power and their influence to stimulate innovation however when it comes to the funding of that private capital is better placed to assume the risk uh, that's required it's not a great headline if the ecb loses four million pounds on an innovative new virtual reality technology game that didn't work out right because that four million pounds could be the difference between being able to fund you know, grassroots crickets in the southwest, or not being able to fund that. You know, that's the role of regulators is to protect fans, protect players, and invest in the grassroots uh, of the game, so that we actually have participants, players, and fans in the future. Uh, it's the job of private capital to take risk um, on on new innovations, in my view. Okay, let let's talk about the. I mean, you mentioned there about the sort of um, competitive balance and the the the. The wages and salaries and the player auction being a a device for that. I remember the first IPL auction and it was really exciting because it, it, no one had seen this sort of stuff going on before, you know, say outside of um, American major league sport. So you, how do you go about, um, there's, there's two questions. One is how you go about the valuation question and how much of it is rational and how much of it is emotional when you're looking at a, building a team from almost from scratch. And the other question is how that auction process has, has evolved over the, that sort of whatever it is, 13 years now, I guess. Yeah, well, look, firstly, I'm glad you said it was exciting because I can remember <laughs> the, general, the general view of the English media uh, with the first IPL auction was, was anything um, but positive. It was, uh, you know, it was. I think I think there was only one English journalist that actually came out for the first uh, for the first IPR auction, which again I, I found extraordinary, given that it was such a uh, such a monumental day in the evolution uh, of cricket. Um, but look, the, the you know the auction is an exciting innovation. It is a different innovation. Um, I actually think that there are many things about the IPL where innovation has uh, accelerated or continued. I, I actually think the auction. Um, you know, has has stayed remarkably the same uh, over the 13 years, uh, and actually probably is due uh, a little bit of innovation and fresh thought. And maybe this year that's going to be forced upon us because it's not even clear we can have a physical uh, auction in much the same way that the uh, NFL had to have a virtual draft. So 
so I don't, I don't think I think the auction was initially an innovation, but I think there's scope for much more innovation in terms of your question around valuation, you know, ration versus rational versus emotional. I mean, I'd like to say that every decision we've made has been rational, but clearly that's not the case. That's the beauty of sport. It's the beauty of sports ownership is um, is there is there is, a, there is an incredibly emotional component to it. You know, what I can say is by and large the decisions that we make that are emotionally driven rather than rationally driven uh, tend to have a, a higher percentage of bads rather than goods so as much as we can uh, we apply um, science and rationality to it um, but it's not not possible um, and then uh, to, you, to your question about the auction process and how that's evolved and as i said i don't think it has evolved significantly what has evolved is where the value is allocated so you know, I remember you know, back in the day in the in the first auction, it was all about the superstar players, whatever format of the game they were superstars in, whether it was Test, One Day. Uh, a lot of the teams were focused on just getting big name superstars uh, into their uh, into their franchises, uh, and there wasn't a lot of thought given to, for example, the roles that players were going to play. Now, um, the planning by all teams in the IPL goes on months before people are targeting players for specific roles thinking about the balance of the team they're applying to the hardest to find parts of the role so um, Indian quick bowlers used to be in relatively short supply and so the best Indian quicks would uh, would attract disproportionately high salaries um, most teams now spend big on their Indian spinners young Indian players who have the potential to play for your franchise for seven or eight years, uh, you know, now get very, very large numbers. I'm constantly explaining to people outside of India, you know, why is it the superstar overseas bats, um, often you know, players like Owen Morgan, often don't don't attract the big bucks. And, it's, and the answer is very simple because most overseas slots are deployed against fast bowlers or one, maximum two bats. Uh, we'll get into the first level. So that sort of supply demand allocation of capital piece has got really interesting in the last four or five years. I was talking to um, Luis Vicente, who is uh, was a player agent. He's now uh, runs Eleven Sport, but he's also in the, in the in between those was a was involved with Real Madrid um, on the commercial side in the Galacticus era. Era, and we were talking about actually over the long term whether that period of Galacticus worked as a strategy and and there's an argument that suggests that actually it built the brand up and there was enormous sort of external benefits to it I was wondering you know this probably the same thing applies does it when you're looking at those early days of the you're building not just a team but also you're building a team brand and a following and all of the stuff that we take for granted for example in football about fandom and the sort of loyalty and the and the what is a fan all of those questions i guess were also at play but one of the things that is most interesting i think about the ipl ipl is actually how those franchise cultures were 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 created from nothing almost and and have, have sort of stood the test of time it's quite an interesting experiment in that way yeah, look, Richard. There's about four different questions in there. I know. But let's let's let, let's 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 just talk a bit about that. Um, the, the, the comment about the Real Madrid Galacticos. I mean, there's no question that when you're thinking about the balance of your 
player selection, there's a really interesting interplay between um, your primary focus, which has to be about picking a selection of players who you think can win the tournament. So your primary focus has to be performance. But there is always uh, a little bit of a thought uh, around ensuring that you have got uh, superstar brand value appeal as a franchise. There's also often a thought around how certain players particularly associated with certain franchises. Um, so anyone that says it's 100% about performance is being disingenuous. But I, I genuinely believe performance uh, has to be your primary focus. I think actually when we started out in 2008, we were we were almost too performance focused. I mean, you know, our player selection strategies were always driven um, simply and purely about picking the best players that we could within the budget that we had set ourselves, which was a lower budget than many of the other teams set themselves. Um, and so I, I think we miss things, for example, um, such as you know the importance of uh, of big name Indian players uh, in your team to build those fan followings and to build those tribes. Um, so for many years, our teams, team compositions were were largely you know young developing Indian players combining with more experienced overseas players. Um, we, we were very fortunate with the choice of Shane Warner as captain of coach because he was one of those mega cricketers that sort of transcended boundaries and was a superstar even in India. Um, but, you know, Warner aside, we didn't have that many superstars in the early years from, from an Indian fan perspective. And I can remember many a game where, many a home game, where our fans would actually be going for the opposition Indian superstars. And it was one of the things I was most sceptical about when I invested in the IPL as to whether you could build those tribes, as we call them in the book, um, whether you could build that fan following quickly. Um, and it's one of the things that's actually surprised me about the IPL is how fans have you know, attached themselves to particular teams because a lot of people thought you would never, ever convince Indian fans to go for overseas players against Indian superstars. And for me, I remember a telling moment actually was in our first semi-final in Bombay when we were playing Delhi. We were playing, I think they were called um, uh, Delhi Daredevils at the time, but um, we were playing against Delhi uh, in the first tournament, in the first semi-final. And Shane Watson was bowling to Verinda Sewak, and the crowd, because we'd become the, um, you know, we'd become the sort of story of the IPL in that first year. The, the thirty thousand fans in Bombay were all chanting you know, Shane for Shane Watson as he was bowling against Verinda Sewak and Gotham Gambier, and I, I never thought we'd see that so quickly. I can't imagine any cricket. Crowd, <laughs> I'm joking, but I, that was uh, that must have been an extraordinary moment. Listen, he's very popular amongst young Indian fans and uh, and Indian female fans. I can tell you, he's got an incredible following in India. You know, built around his consistent performances in in the IPL. How has the sort of rise of performance data? Change that process. I just wondering, has it has it completely? There's a, there's a sort of science art v science thing, but um, I've got a horrible feeling that it's taken the colour out of that process. That you're actually relying on the spreadsheet over the the sort of eyes of the coach, etc. Or is that just is that just a cliche? Uh, I don't think that's the case. I don't think you can ever turn um, 
player selection, team selection, auction decisions into a pure spreadsheet exercise. You've got to look at more than that. You know, one of the things I talk about in the book actually is we talk about you know we're amazed at how much data is being used. Um, you know, I still think we're at the tip of the iceberg on on how data is used within sport. Uh, you know, when I look at the transformation within cricket of the role of the analyst uh, of the data that's used uh, you know it has been extraordinary uh, in a very short period of time but then when i go you know when i look at what we do with our technology businesses and how we're using data um, in sort of mainstream life there's, there's there's still so much more for us to do a big area that we talk about in the book is you know the use of data in assessing um, psychological performance or in tournaments like the IPL, um, what you're really doing as a coach is trying to get the, the heads of the players in the right place uh, to perform because the reality is those players together for such a short period of time, the idea that you do any technical coaching or that you're going to change batting grips or change bowling actions you know, is laughable. It's all about creating an environment and creating a team psychology where that team on that day on a continued basis can 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 perform better than the others and so much of that is to do with the psychology uh, of the players um and the mental side of it so i i think we're literally uh, at the start of the data revolution within sport but but i don't think you'll ever get to a situation where you make all decisions on the basis of data um that coach intuition that player intuition is always going to play finally on the on the players side how many players sell tickets uh you know or to, to use a different phrase you know, how many box office players are there in the world yeah fewer than people think actually um you know, i think you know we're fortunate in the ipl that you know the ipl and the excitement around the ipl and the fact that it's a, a you know a scarce event that comes into town seven times a year you know that 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 sells the tickets but there are players there are there are players like Dhoni, there are players like Coley, uh, and there are international players like uh, like Joss Butler. I mean, you know, he's he is definition of box office. I mean, cricket fans will come uh, to watch him bat. Um, but uh, uh, you know, the Hardik Pandyas, there's there's lots of them, but um, perhaps not as many as people think. Okay, let's just talk about the sort of globalization. Um, of sport and of the IPL and the 2020 cricket and of the Royals. I mean, that my assumption is that's where it's going. Um, is it? Is that true? I mean, in terms of of expanding the footprint of the competition, we'll see we've got an environment now where you know there are lots and lots of 2020 competitions um, evolving, lots of franchises uh, being sort of developed and launched. How? What's going to happen over the next sort of five years? What's your What's your bet? Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I've got a crystal ball. But but if I if I just go back to the globalization of the sport, I mean, I think I think it's you, you're absolutely right. There there is an awful lot uh, happening around the world as it pertains to cricket, new cricket leagues, new cricket franchise tournaments, etc. I think it's super important that the the game continues to grow. People often say, you know, does the game need to globalise? Does the need, does the game need to grow? In my, my own view, whether it's cricket or any other industry, is you know, the only industries that survive survive are industries or businesses or sports that have 
participant growth as a core and fan growth as a core objective in everything they do. So I think growth is really the objective. For cricket, that does uh, mean taking it into new territories and indeed expanding the game within the territories in which it's already played. But equally, that has to be done in a coordinated fashion. So while people automatically assume that I'm a fan of all of these new leagues, one of the things I worry about is player burnout. You look at the cricket calendar right now, and uh, especially with the new demands placed on players through the need to be in biosecure bubbles, um, I think the number of days of cricket a player can you know, can actually um, manage with is going to go down dramatically uh, while we're in this sort of biosecure pre-vaccine kind of environment. And we've got to really protect those assets. And so it isn't just about unconstrained and unmanaged growth. It's about coordinated growth. And I think also we have to think about how these different leagues, what's the purpose of these different leagues? Um, because the reality is the IPL is going to be the biggest league economically and in terms of the quality of cricket that's played because it's it's able to pay uh, the highest salaries and therefore is the most hotly contested and competed league for the very best players. But how these other leagues feed into that sort of IPL ecosystem, uh, I think is really important. And I think for a while, the only obsession uh, in, in countries like England and to some extent Australia was to create something that competes with the IPL. When in fact, to me, that's just like a, it's like a, it's the wrong objective. You know, this needs to be something that you know, the objective should be, how do we uh, embrace what the IPL has achieved? How do we collaborate and coordinate with the IPL? How many major domestic leagues can the calendar actually support? And then what's the role of these secondary and tertiary leagues. So I think there's a really important role for those leagues in terms of young player development, creating opportunities for franchises and boards to see young players play competitive cricket. But there needs to be much more thought into the collaboration and coordination and generally within sport. We're not brilliant at collaboration and coordination. You own or co-own the the Royals franchise. Is the growth... Coming, there are two modes of growth, or have been historically in sport. There is there is a sort of what you might call the NBA version, which is a sort of the league does the the you know the does the exporting and does the the marketing um, of the of the sport, and then the teams benefit from that. And then you've got a sort of European football model where it's been pretty much left historically to the clubs to do it themselves, so Man United or Real Madrid or Juventus. Um, in terms of expanding the IPL, would you expect it to be a to come from the centre rather than the franchises? It's an interesting question. I suspect the best form of expansion is when the two work together, i.e., the centre and the franchises. Um, uh, I don't know if there's a you know if there's a particular case study there, but when I look at the NBA and the NFL, it does seem to me that there's a a very close coordination between the franchises and the league itself. So I suspect that's the right answer. Um, but equally, we have to be careful about what what do we mean by that expansion? I mean, you know, the 
I think it's in the IPL's interest, I think it's in global cricket's interests for us to support the development of other strong leagues as well internationally. Um, and I don't think I, I don't think our sole objective should be expansion of the IPL. I've come back to it, it's about growth of the game. There are a lot of overseas IPL fans who would love to see an IPL game who don't have either the time or the economic means to come to India. So the notion of IPL teams playing each other uh, you know, outside of the season uh, has to be interesting in areas where there are significant uh, Indian diasporas, whether that's the UK, the US, the Middle East. Um, so that has to be explored. But again, it has to be explored in a way that doesn't um, you know, damage uh, other domestic leagues as well. Um, so, so to answer your question, I think you know we as a franchise have invested significantly in trying to build our supporter bases, uh, in particularly here in the UK, but also in the Middle East uh, and the US, where we have large fan followings. Um, and we will continue to do that. But um, it'd be great to work in tandem with the league on something. How much do you know about global sports fans and, and Royals fans around the world? I mean, I'm just wondering if, if again, one of the, the received wisdoms is the further away from the ground you get, the, the more promiscuous fans get within, you know, from team to team and they're more star driven. Um, is that, so what do you, what do you know about them? Not, not, not as much as I'd like to know and not as much as we um, are um, trying to know. Um, again, this has been one of the big transformations that digital, I mean, everyone talks about the transformation in digital content that's come out of, uh, you know, the last sort of five to seven years. But actually, digital technology, um, CRM technologies, customer relationship management technologies, stuff that fans don't see at the back end, has allowed you to get much more information about fans, um, ask more questions of those fans, find out more about those fans, uh, and ultimately engage more deeply with those fans. Um, so we, so we, we, we do benefit from that. We know an awful lot, and we're constantly surprised by how why widespread our fan base is. And I don't think it's as simple as the closer you are to Jaipur, the more engaged you are as a Royals fan. I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, um, we've got incredibly engaged fans outside of India and sometimes, in fact, struggle to get the same level of digital engagement with our fan base within India uh, because you know, many, uh, many people in Rajasthan still don't have access or ownership of a smartphone so what you can do with fans in different parts of the world is also quite different uh but um but back to what i said earlier about being at the tip of the iceberg about the data revolution that's going to go on with sports you know as you see big tech and by, by i mean big tech i mean the microsoft's the facebook's the google's the amazon's have you see as you see them start to lean into sport in a way that they really haven't uh, even begun to do uh, other than the last three or four years. When you see them lean into sport, what's going to happen to fan experience, fan engagement, fan data uh, is going to be quite extraordinary over the next three to five years. Uh, and we will learn more. We will um, have more data about these fans and we will have we will have more global fan bases. Okay. Well, listen, Manoj, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed the chat. We um, There's a couple of things. One is, is we should talk about about the book people should buy the book and for a particular reason one it's a good you know interesting book but also where where's the sales going to 
Yeah, look, we never wrote the book with a financial objective in mind. So any any income from the sales, and I really appreciate you asking the question, is going to the coronavirus appeal that the British Asian Trust, which is a charity that I've chaired for 13 years now, um, uh, and it's you know, coronavirus has impacted uh, the most needy uh, in society uh, the most. Uh, and there are 500 million people in South Asia that live on less than a dollar a day. And without those, without the, the passion of those people, uh, tournaments like the IPL wouldn't be what they are. So um, so all the proceeds go in there. If you buy it from a newinnings.com rather than via Amazon or via some other retailer, 100% of the proceeds uh, go to the appeal. So even though it's not as slick as Amazon, um, I'd encourage you to go to a newinnings.com uh, if you're so minded. But Richard, look, many, many thanks to you uh, for what I thought was a great set of questions. Um, and uh, I hope I haven't droned on too long. Um, and, you know, best of luck with a with a podcast that uh, I think is just becoming more and more relevant and more and more important because less fans and players understand the business of sport, we're not going to be able to grow the sports that we love. Okay. Thank you very much, Manoj. 